So if you were here last week, you may remember that I talked about being people of vision. And I started by saying that sometimes people ask me how long it takes to write a Sunday talk. And the answer to that was that I usually start thinking and praying about it about three weeks before. And I said that in the case of today's uh, talk, it was a bit longer than that because rather than three weeks in the making, it had been three years in the making. I did the first draft of that talk three years ago when Lynn and I were in the States to speak at a Vineyard Theology Conference. Well, this week's talk is of a completely different order of magnitude to that, as they say. Rather than three years in the making or three weeks in the making, this one has been about three hours in the making. I woke up at 3.30 this morning to write it. So if it's a bit scruffy around the edges, and I'm a bit scruffy around the edges, then you'll know why. Now before anyone says, I can't believe that you have left it that late. What have you been doing the rest of the week? What on earth do we pay you for? I did have what I thought was a perfectly good sermon. And in fact, me being me, I thought it was actually really quite a good sermon. I had it all written and ready to go when I went to bed last night. One that I'd spent hours on during the week and a few hours yesterday afternoon as well. But what happened was I woke up at 3.30 and I had this very clear sense that God was saying to me, you've got it all wrong. <laughs> that was the exact phrase, I wrote it down at the time. You've got it all wrong. At the best of times, feeling that God is saying you've got it all wrong is a very uncomfortable feeling. And it's especially uncomfortable when the Thanksgiving service is coming up and you know that you're due to speak in five hours' time and in effect he's just said to you to scrap everything that you were planning to say. Now as you might imagine, uh, my first reaction was to want to argue about it. Uh, or at least to negotiate. So I said, what's wrong with the talk? And I felt God was saying, it's not so much there's anything wrong in the sermon, it's just that it's the wrong sermon. It's not that there was any dodgy theology in it, or at least no more than there usually is. It was just that it was the wrong message to the wrong audience on the wrong day. Now, I've always kind of poo-pooed the idea that it's quite prevalent in some Christian circles that the height of spirituality is when, as they put it, God shows up, and because of that, we scrap the sermon. And I remember once asking a very experienced vineyard church pastor who's planted two great vineyard churches uh, whether he believed in scrapping the sermon if, quote, God shows up. And he said, well, not really. He said, we're evangelicals. We believe in the sermon. So I pressed him a bit more on that, and I said, but has that ever happened to you? And he said, yes, it did once. That's once in 25 years of church planting. So I guess today is probably my personal once in 25 years moment, at least until the next time. So after what was a fairly significant 4am prayer meeting, as you might imagine, just between me and God, what I'm going to say this morning is the fruit of that. 
So if you cast your mind back to last week, I talked about vision, and the week before that, I was talking about giving. And today, what I want to try to do is to show how vision and giving come together in our lives. Now, I haven't got a title for the talk yet, because, to be honest, at four in the morning, that really wasn't uppermost in my concerns. So I'll have one for it by the time it goes on the website. And when I got to this point in in writing it earlier this morning, I had no idea whether it was going to be three points or 33 points. You'd be pleased to know it turned out not to be 33 points. But what I want this morning is for just one point, maybe, to work for you in your situation and for it to be something that God is able to use to speak to you about these subjects. So that's what I'm praying for. Okay, so as God's people, why do we give in the first place? And I'm sure if I was to ask for a show of hands for the reasons, there would be lots of different ones. We believe that God wants us to. We believe the Bible tells us to. We want to make a difference in the world through our giving. We're grateful to God for all that he's given us. We see the connection between sowing and reaping. We believe there's a biblical link between our generosity to God and God's generosity to us. Or put another way around, we believe that the people God will bless are people who want to be a blessing, not just wanting to be blessed for themselves. So I'm sure there are lots of reasons and maybe all of the above and maybe some others as well. And to avoid a secondary market developing in speculation about my scrapped sermon, uh, the kind of thing that I was going to talk about was lots of verses about tithes and offerings and why we should do this and we ought to do that. But what I felt that God was saying was that All of those verses and passages reflect my heart, but they are not my heart. So he said, ask me about my heart for giving instead and share that with people this morning. So stop asking the what questions and start asking the why questions. Don't focus on the fruit, focus on the root. So that is what I'm going to try to do. I want to share a few thoughts from one particular Bible passage that I think reflects God's heart, a passage that he put on my heart earlier this morning that I think brings vision and giving together. So it's in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, starting at verse 19, where Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now I quite often like to look up a verse in more than one translation, and sometimes a a paraphrase as well. The NLT says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. The message says, The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. And what these are all saying is that there is a direct link between where our heart is and where our treasure is. Whatever we invest our treasure in 
our heart will surely follow. And wherever our heart is, our treasure will surely follow as well. Our heart and our treasure are like a chicken and egg. It doesn't really matter which came first because they all end up in the same place. And you know, it's easy for us to kid ourselves that there is no link between our money and our hearts, that we can detach the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. We kid ourselves that we can detach that from what we do with our money. But Jesus is saying here that actually we can't do that because everything that we do in our lives Every aspect of how we live our lives is a reflection of our love for something. What we do and don't do in our giving is a reflection of our love for something. So the only question is, what? Let's read on in the same chapter, Matthew 6, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Hmm, that sounds a a bit harsh, doesn't it? Now, Matthew 6 comes right in the centre of a long piece of teaching by Jesus. In fact, it's the longest continuous passage of teaching by Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew 5 through 7, that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And Obviously, unlike me, Jesus decided not to scrap this bit, even though I might have done in case it offended someone. Now, people like me should not be in the business of offending anyone, but Jesus is free to offend us if he wants to. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's not not wandering off into some medical diagnosis. He's actually continuing with the same spiritual diagnosis. And that becomes clear if we look at the verses before and the verses um, afterwards uh, as a kind of sandwich. To paraphrase something that William Shakespeare said, our eyes are the window to our heart. And you may remember when Eve was in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, Everything started to go wrong when she saw the fruit of the tree that she'd been warned away from and she wanted it. Her eyes made her want it. To want something that wasn't right because God wasn't in it. And, you know, temptation begins with seeing something that's not right and wanting it. And in this context here, Jesus is not talking just about lust which is the way that this verse has often been applied in the Christian world. And that's not wrong because obviously it can include that. But in this particular context, he's still talking about where our treasure is and where our heart is. Because our treasure goes where our heart goes. Our heart goes to what we have vision for, what our eyes are mostly focused on. So if our vision is healthy, our vision for us, our vision for his church and our vision for his world, if our vision for those things is healthy, then our hearts will be healthy. But if our vision for ourselves is unhealthy, 
If our vision for his church and his world is unhealthy, then our hearts will be unhealthy as well. They will be full of darkness rather than light. And that's, of course, why Jesus said another very harsh-sounding thing in Matthew 5, the chapter before this. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, he said. Better to be in heaven with one eye than in hell with two. So, reading on. No one can serve two masters, says Jesus. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And you know, it's interesting here that the NIV decides to capitalise the word money, as if it's a person. And maybe it's actually got the sense of it spot on here, because it kind of boils down to who we are in love with. Jesus is saying that it's like faithfulness in a relationship. Being faithful to one person means not cheating with someone else. Being faithful to God means not having an affair with money at the same time, because you can't love both God and money. And there's also a slavery metaphor underlying this as well. Which of these two options, which of these two, are we more of a slave to? Now, when Jesus starts talking about money in these kinds of ways, quite honestly, it takes the whole discussion way beyond whether we should tithe or not, whether it should be net or gross, whether Old Testament commandments about giving still apply to us today in the same way or not. It takes it completely out of the realm of quoting proof texts and into the realm of the heart, what we love, and who we love, because our money will always follow that. What we do with our time will always follow that. And what I think Jesus is saying here is that there is a battle going on for our hearts in which money is the battleground. God is facing competition for our love and our affections. And first and foremost, what he's competing with is money. He's competing with consumerism. Now, whenever we talk about giving in the church, we do not want anyone to be giving money that they need to survive. Money they need to pay the bills or money that they're using to support their family overseas or anything like that. We don't want anyone to be suffering because of anything that we have said or implied about giving. Our giving should not come out of our survival money. It should come out of our lifestyle money, our discretionary spending. Our giving to God is not in competition with the gas bill or the rent or the children's school uniforms. What it's in competition with is a consumer lifestyle. It's in competition with my spending on me. Takeaways eating out, new cars, shopping trips, acquiring more stuff, more holidays abroad, building up a nest egg and stuff like that. Those are the kinds of things that our giving to God is in competition with. And the questions that God asks us when it comes to our money are all to do with how much we love him compared to how much we love these other things. 
And that's not because any of them are wrong in themselves. It's because if we allow them to, they will consume all of our money because they will consume our heart. And that is why we need to look at our scope to give to God before our spending on those things, not after we've spent all those things. Because otherwise, there will never be anything left to give from. Because the consumer dream will gobble everything up if we allow it to. And that, of course, is why biblical giving is always from the first fruits, not the last fruits. So let's finish off by reading the rest of Matthew 6. And you'll notice it begins with a therefore. And that tells us that the bit that's coming is directly linked to what we've just been talking about. Therefore I tell you, says Jesus, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And what this passage, this long passage is talking about, the phrase that I think basically sums it up, and one that is great to try to remember if you can, is this one. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first the kingdom. Do the right things. Love the right things. Not the food and the drink, not the body, not the clothes, not the shopping, not the consumer dream. Don't be in love with money, with a capital M. Be in love with Jesus, with a capital J. Love the things he loves. Have a vision for the things he loves, which goes beyond our vision and our love for ourselves. So let's not run after all these other things first like the world does. Let's run after the kingdom first. Seeking the kingdom first means putting other things behind it in our list of priorities. I want to finish with uh, something else that Jesus said towards the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 25, verse 21. And it comes at at the end of a parable, we haven't got time to read the whole parable, but it comes at the end of of a parable about a group of servants who are left in charge of the master's affairs while he goes away on a trip. And the parable is about how they handled themselves while he wasn't there in person to see what they were doing. How faithful they were to what he asked of them 
when he wasn't there personally to check up on them, when they didn't have to look him in the eye as to how they handled themselves. And Jesus is kind of making an analogy in this parable with our situation, where Jesus, of course, isn't physically here with us, and how we are going to behave in this same period between the resurrection and when he comes again. The parable is talking about what faithfulness looks like when he's not here to check up on us and what unfaithfulness looks like as well. And this is what he says to the servant who's been faithful to what Jesus wanted him to do in that situation. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know about you, but that's what I want Jesus to be saying to me on that final day. Well done, good and faithful servant. So the question is, the question that God is asking us today, I think, is what does faithfulness look like in my life, in my affections and in my financial giving? What does faithfulness look like? What does seeking the kingdom first look like? What does being a good and faithful servant in my stewardship of what God has given me look like? When it comes to money and when it comes to something like this morning. You know, that parable in Matthew 25 was actually all about what the servants did with the money that the the master had entrusted to them while he was gone. So you might have a read of that later, Matthew 25. In the competition that is going on for my love and my affection, is it God or is it money that's winning? How can I make sure which it is? Because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also.